And I want to start by reading from John chapter 4, but just to give some quick context before we read this as always, Jesus has just finished his conversation with a Samaritan woman who had five husbands and now has now is living basically with a sixth. And you could say this is one of the greatest examples of street evangelism. It starts very naturally by him just asking her for some water. He listens carefully to her questions. He addresses her deep felt longings. He brings her face to face with her sin and he reveals himself as the Messiah or Savior. And the disciples were gone for most of this conversation because they went to get food and they come back probably right when she's leaving. And so let's pick up the story from John chapter 4, verse 27, verse 27, and we're going to read to verse 35. John chapter 4, verse 27, this is God's word. Just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, verse 31, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But Jesus, he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do, not, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. And there's plenty of stories where we can be pretty hard on the disciples because we know the end or we know the big picture. But just imagine they were gone. They went to go get lunch, and Jesus is sitting and resting. It's during the heat of the day, and they're up, going up the road carrying lunch. We don't know what they are saying, but it's not hard to imagine. Maybe they're arguing about who's going to give lunch to Jesus or something like that. And they get there, and they see the woman, the Samaritan woman. They see her leaving, which was already taboo for Jesus to talk to her. And they come back with lunch, and Jesus says, I don't want lunch. He doesn't want the food. And so they're asked, like, what's going on? Jesus gives this cryptic answer here. He says, I had food to eat that you didn't know about. And the disciples, understandably, are confused. They left to get food. They come back. He doesn't want the food because he had some food they didn't know about. So what did they say? They say, did someone else get him food? And Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. That's his food. Jesus is trying to teach them a spiritual lesson. His mission, his devotion, his satisfaction is in doing the will of God, his Father. And the disciples up to that point have missed it. And then Jesus says, look. Look, I tell you. Lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Open up your eyes. See what I see. The fields are ripe for harvest. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to me today, to the church today. Even though we're thousands of years removed, he's saying, look up. See what I see. See from above, not from earthly eyes. And we can get so distracted with the immediate with the material, 
with the cares of the world. We can understand that phrase Jesus uses in the parable of the soils, the cares of the world. And we become preoccupied with what we can physically see or feel, but we need to constantly refocus our vision, our eyes, the eyes of our heart on the spiritual and the eternal. And I have to ask myself honestly as I'm preparing my sermon, I can go about my daily life. I drop off my kids at school in the morning. I'll go to a coffee shop. Maybe I'll chit-chat with my neighbors, catch up with old friends, meet with church people. And in my heart, I can assume that because the people I come across are materially successful, psychologically well, that they're okay, that they're good, they're fine. When in reality, they're living a Christless existence and the trajectory of their souls is headed towards an eternity apart from God. And I see people with such natural eyes. I see the immediate. I see the physical. I see the material needs. But do I see with spiritual eyes as Jesus would see them? Here's an honest question that I want you to think about. Who is more in need, the rich person without Christ or the poor person with Christ? Who is more rich? Who is richer out of the two? How do you think about that? Do you see that as Jesus sees that? Is that our perspective where we think the person who seems to be well psychologically, they have all the material blessings of the world, their life seems to be good, so they're fine even though they don't have Christ. Open up your eyes and look at the harvest. The harvest is ripe. And Jesus gives us this exhortation that as a church family, we need to be meaningfully and intentionally involved in the lives of those around us, our friends, our families, our coworkers, our neighbors, and to see them as those who are far off from God. It's not, we're not here to build a building. We're not trying to increase our numbers or we're not trying to run as efficiently as we can. We need to remember and focus on what we're supposed to be doing here. What was Jesus here to do? Was it to preach sermons, to do miracles, to feed the poor? It says he came to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. What is the will of the Father? In John chapter 4, earlier in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, he says the Father's will, what the Father wants, he's seeking worshipers. He's seeking those who are far to be brought near and not just to become Christians, but to become worshipers. God the Father sent his son. They took the initiative to come to earth, to come to seek and save the lost. And this has to be the same purpose for all Christians, to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. Are you a teacher? What is your job? To do his will and accomplish his work. Are you an engineer? Your job is to do his will and accomplish his work. A nurse, a student, a pastor, whatever it is, our purpose is to open up our eyes, to do his will, to accomplish his work, and to seek and save the lost, to see unbelievers become followers of Jesus Christ and worship him. And this sermon is for those who struggle with this. If you're a gifted evangelist that never ever gives into cowardice and fear, then you could stop listening right now. But for the rest of us, for me, 
From the beginning, I just have to admit, there's a low-level, constant guilt in the background in my life that reminds me, and I'm very good at putting this thought aside, that, Pat, you're a terrible evangelist. You're an inconsistent evangelist. And that's something I need to acknowledge, that I flunk when it comes to this area. And I could try to scrounge up every opportunity where I have shared about God and the gospel. Or I could try to spin it even where maybe it's better that I don't share the gospel. Maybe it wasn't the right opportunity. Maybe I don't want to cause damage. And I could try to revise history to make myself feel better. But honestly, I wouldn't be able to stand up here before you guys without my conscience being compromised if that's how I presented myself. This is an area where I am weak in, and I'm a master at passing up good opportunities to share the gospel. And I can hide behind the pulpit. As a pastor, I'm not afraid of preaching the gospel from the pulpit. I'm preaching the word of God every week. I'm not afraid of talking to people that come to church about God. And I can think that gets me off the hook, but no, I have to acknowledge that change has to happen in my heart where I stop putting aside the promptings of the Spirit. Because when it comes to talking to those I love, even though the doors open up, it's easy because I tell people, I'm a pastor, <laughs> okay? That, certain, that opens up certain doors, but oftentimes I find myself just as hesitant as you. And so let's not be under any illusion regarding my ability at this. We're all in this together, but we can all become more faithful in this. But something has to give. Something has to give. We have to acknowledge that some low-level guilt is something we can't just keep avoiding. We can avoid it, put it away, but in the end, constant disobedience to Christ and his will will create a barrier in your intimacy with God. And if it's the will of the Father to accomplish his work and for us to share the gospel with those who are lost and we're not doing it, we should feel guilt. We should repent of it. We should pray through it, not ignore the names that constantly come to our mind, the constant promptings of the Spirit to talk to that family member of yours. I don't want us to get numb or indifferent when our conscience should be bothered. If we want power, if we want blessing, if we want intimacy with Christ, but there's something getting in the way of our relationship with God where he wants us to bear fruit and he wants us to share the gospel, then something has to give. Something has to be overcome if we're going to truly become authentic and consistent where let's not put it aside. Let's not neglect it. Let's not blank it out. We know this is the will of God. And what we can do if we're weak is this. To commit ourselves to not forget, to not ignore, to not neglect, but to commit ourselves that we want to grow in this and we're going to pray through it. And so with a humble spirit, let's commit ourselves now that I want to grow in this area. I want to become closer to God. I want to experience his power and blessing as I take some risk and trust that God will be faithful. I want to be unafraid. I want to be unashamed of the gospel and before, we're going to be in Romans chapter 1, and before I get practical, I always want to be theological. And so let's get to the heart of the issue of why we don't evangelize. In Romans chapter 1, our main text for today, Romans chapter 1, verse 16 through 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And just to give a brief context, Paul mentions the power of God, but he's writing to the church in Rome. And if you talk to any Roman citizen and ask them what comes to mind when you think of the word power, they would have thought of the Roman Empire. The most powerful nation on earth. They devastated the entire known world. It was said that they make a desert and call it peace. They overwhelmed all other powers. And Paul was aware of this. He saw this. He saw their intellectual power, their scientific and technological power. And how did the most powerful nation on earth view Christianity? Archaeologists have dug up some interesting things on this topic. There's a caricature that was found during the Christian era that depicts a slave bowing down before a cross. And underneath the picture, it says, Alexamenos worships his God and crucified on the cross is a donkey. That was Christianity to the Romans, foolishness, ridiculous. Only fools would follow such a weak religion. We worship a dead man, that's what they would say. And yet Paul comes and he says, I want to come to Rome and preach the gospel. In verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And he goes on to say, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not intimidated by the greatness of Rome or Athens or Corinth or Ephesus. And he's eager and enthusiastic in preaching the gospel. He's not hesitant at all to preach it. And I think all of us would honestly say, I want to be like Paul. I want to identify with Paul in this way. But the fact is, we have to admit a big part of the reason we don't evangelize is because we're ashamed of the gospel. I don't think we'd say that out loud, but we're embarrassed. We're afraid. The gospel seems foolish. It seems unimpressive and uneducated. Maybe that's why we don't speak when we should speak. We're not bold when we should be bold. The gospel is foolishness to the world. At its heart, it talks about sin and guilt and death, and it's about getting people to recognize their lostness. Or it sounds so silly, it sounds like a children's story that's too good to be true. When all the stories point to this story, when Harry Potter's mom dies to save him from the evil wizard through her dying love. And we face a society that sees this as so foolish because they're so sophisticated, so wise, so intellectual, so well-researched, and the gospel will be foolishness to them, and therefore anyone who associates the gospel is a fool. And in one sense, we all know Paul is like the ultimate example, and I'm thankful for him, and I'm also thankful for other examples that sometimes I can relate to a little more closely. Timothy, it says, he was timid, timid and fearful. Even Peter, if you look at Galatians chapter 2, we all like Peter because he's so relatable. Even he gave into peer pressure before the Jewish believers from Jerusalem, and he forgot the gospel, and he was embarrassed to sit with his Gentile Christian friends when these new guys showed up. I think we can understand that. And you can even see why 
those who are ashamed of the gospel, why people flock to the health and wealth and prosperity gospels. They pervert the gospel because let's just take out everything about the gospel that's offensive. Let's make it more tame. Let's change it to accommodate the ears of men. And out of shame or embarrassment, they take out all the things that may repel men and women from hearing it, and they corrupt it and tell the people what they want to hear. Is it any wonder that prosperity gospel is so popular? It's you're telling them what they want to hear. But Paul gives his reasoning for why he's not ashamed of the gospel. He says, for, because, the reason is, it is the power of God for salvation. And because all the intellectual power of the world, it's all of its sophistication, all of its wisdom and knowledge and technology and research has not proven able to be, it cannot save. It cannot save. It can't even save us from our felt needs. As time passes, we fall into thinking that we'll figure it out. We'll figure out all the problems of humanity. We'll get better. We'll figure out how to overcome immorality, corruption, war, suicide, mental health issues. But you look at all these different countries with all of their sophistication, countries like South Korea with all of its growing technology and growing secularism with one of the highest youth suicide rates. And what power does it all have? C.S. Lewis calls it chronological snobbery, where we just think because we're, time is passes, we're more advanced, but we're not figuring it out. We're not figuring out how to meet the deepest longings and the biggest problems of humanity. And Paul, in seeking to address all the fears and weaknesses and insecurities of the Church of Rome, he points to the unimpressive yet powerful gospel. Because all the power of the world cannot provide forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life, he wants to come to Rome because he had a message that comes with it, power. The gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to believers it is the power of God of salvation for those who believe. And Paul knew that firsthand. And so what is the message that has saving power. Let's talk about the good news because you can't really evangelize if you don't know what the evangel, that's the Greek word, if you don't know what the evangel or the good news of Christianity is. What do I mean by the gospel? Verse 17 is going to tell us. It's the righteousness of God that he has provided through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 1.17 says, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous, righteous shall live by faith. And so it starts with God. God is a righteous God. He's a righteous judge. He always acts in a righteous manner, consistent with his goodness, his purity, his character, his holiness, his justice. Deuteronomy 32.4, Genesis 18.25. And man is an unrighteous defendant. We can't defend ourselves based on our character. Psalm 133, we can't defend ourselves based on keeping the law, Romans 3.20. Our performance record is not righteous. We are not worthy. We don't have the right to stand in God's presence because we are guilty. When we think of like applying for a college application, we, we want our application, we want our resume to show our righteousness, our right to be a student at this campus, our right to be our qualifications for this job. 
But none of us, when it comes to God's presence, have a right. We are not worthy. We are not qualified to stand in his presence. That's what Romans chapter 1, verse 18, verse through chapter 3, verse 20 is all about. My absolute lack of righteousness. Starting with the Gentiles and the Jews, it's universal. We all fall short of the glory and righteousness of God, and he would therefore be right to condemn us or to judge us. None of us by nature are right with God. But Romans chapter 3, verse 21, all the way to Romans chapter 8, verse 39, is about God's glorious provision of the righteousness that we need. I need righteousness. Where do I go? The wrong way mankind tries to solve this problem is to fix ourselves, our own morality. But that doesn't work because we are broken. And when we try to fix ourselves, we're just adding brokenness to our brokenness. And instead, the God with whom one day we'll stand before, he has provided the righteousness that I need, that we need in the gift of Jesus, his son. The righteous God in a righteous way has provided righteousness for sinners when they come to believe. And he has shown his righteousness throughout history. That's Romans chapter 9 verses through Romans chapter 11. And he will work out that righteousness in our everyday lives. That's Romans chapter 12 through Romans chapter 16. The righteous will live day by day by faith. And one day, we'll stand face to face with Jesus. And we'll stand before him and he'll say our name. And if I try to stand upon my righteousness, if I try to be right or worthy or accepted in the presence of God based upon my record, I will be declared guilty for all eternity by a righteous judge. And how will that make you feel? That there is no appeal to that. That for all eternity, you will be separated from God. What would it feel like if God, the ultimate judge, were to say that we are guilty before him? That would lead to tremendous despair and agony. There will be no hope. But for believers, we won't point to ourselves. We'll point to Romans 1.17, the righteous shall live by faith. We're the ones who say the only things we brought to the table for salvation is our sin that made it necessary. And we'll say, God, look, I look to you and what you did. I trust in the work of Christ on my behalf. That is my righteousness. And God will say to us, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You will hear God's voice to you, and he will say, Not uh, not guilty, but righteous for all eternity. How would you feel at that moment? How would you feel when you see what should have been, and you see the alternative that God has provided by his grace for those who believe in him? And what is this worth to you? What is Jesus worth to you? Have you discovered the power of God for salvation? Or have you forgotten it? Has it changed your life? 
Have you really discovered this power? Have you believed in this? Is this precious to you? Have you experienced the joy of God saying, I forgive you? The hope of eternal life, the satisfaction that he brings, that he does meet our deepest longings. Are you right with him? Are you right now relying and trusting in Jesus alone for your standing before God? Think about where we would be without God. Where would I be without Christ? When we feel the weight of this, we can understand why the Apostle Paul wasn't ashamed of the gospel. He believed it. He believed it was powerful. He believed it changed lives. Lies, that it was the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. He knew it, and if we don't know how powerful the gospel is, we'll naturally be hopeless when it comes to evangelism. Our view of God and his power can shrivel up. We see him as so small. And so when we look at humans, they look so intimidating and powerful, and we get afraid. We're afraid of man rather than fearing God, and we lack confidence. If you've experienced the power of God for salvation, that's what you need. That's all you need to know in order to tell someone about Jesus. You need to know the gospel, and you need to know how it changed your life. You need to be able to answer the question, what is Jesus worth to me? Really, write that out. Your answer to that question is what you need to share. That's your testimony. And your testimony needs to actually include the gospel message explicitly, clearly, the historical events. Our faith is not built upon, oh, it, it feels good, therefore it must be true. No, it's true. That's why it works. It's based upon the historical events of the gospel that Jesus existed, he lived a perfect life, he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, proving he is God, he ascended and he is now at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you. Your testimony needs to include that gospel message so that Christian, non-Christians can be evangelized when they hear your testimony, it's not just sharing, hey, God changed my life. It's proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. What happened? How did it happen? And how did it change my life? And evangelism is not converting people. It's faithful evangelism is taking the initiative to share Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and then leaving the results to God. God is the one who will give faith. It's a gift of God, and he does want to save people. God loves to save sinners. We're just the mail carriers delivering the message. We're not the one being rejected. It's God being rejected, but it's not our job to remove the blindfold that Satan has put on each other's eyes, on unbelievers' eyes. We can't change hearts. That's just like this constant lesson I'm learning in my life. I cannot change hearts. I can't open people's eyes. Our job is to simply present Christ faithfully. That's evangelism. Communicate the gospel and let Christ do the saving. 
Mark Dever says, we do not fail in our evangelism if we faithfully tell the gospel to someone who is not subsequently converted. We fail only if we do not faithfully tell the gospel at all. And evangelism is not the problem. It's the fact that we've never tried it. We don't even give people an opportunity to reject the true gospel. We just don't even try. But there is nobody out of the scope of the gospel, whether they're religious, ethnic, social, educational background, it's for all, and so we go to all so that Christ may be received by all who come to him in faith. Do you think like you're better? Like, oh, I understand the gospel. But that person, of course, they can never understand the gospel. Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you did not receive? It was all by God's grace. Whether Jew or Gentile, the gospel is universal in its scope. And to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, Peter says, for generation after generation after generation, all who are far, the gospel is for them. And so it goes back to, if you haven't heard it, the first message of this series, love for God, treasuring God, being satisfied in Christ, that is the reason we do what we do. It can't just be about a bunch of rules or laws or legalistic things. If that's the only reason you're going you're to gospelize or evangelize, it's not going to work. But Luke 6.45 says, The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And so what is your heart full of? You can tell what your heart is full of by what you spend all your time talking about. Is your heart full of Christ? Then it will be very natural for you to talk about Christ. Ultimately, evangelism has to flow out of the greatest commandment. Are you excited about who Jesus is? Love for Christ will always want to introduce other people to Christ. Let me introduce you to him. And you don't have to have all the right answers. It's not about an absence of training. We can use the excuse, well, I'm not really trained in this. But first, it's love and enthusiasm for who Jesus is. That's the main training. Evangelism, just like community, doesn't start with evangelism. It starts with God. Who is God? It starts by being melted by the gospel then you'll evangelize. And if you were tempted to just turn your brain off when we went over the gospel in Romans chapter 1, you need to go back to it. If you thought, oh, I've heard this before, therefore it's not for me. No, the gospel is for Christians. And we need to do what we can to fight, to keep our hearts soft, to keep our gratitude fresh, Spend time on meditating on the gospel, thanking God for your salvation. When the cross is melting your heart, then your words won't be far behind. I don't want us to just go and like, let's just by the power of my flesh, go and let's evangelize. But it's always in view of his mercies that we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. But let's talk more about what that looks like, okay? How can we become better evangelists? We need to 
I'm going to give just five different exhortations for us, or hopefully encouragements, or challenges for us, however you want to accept it. Number one, accept and embrace the call to evangelize. Accept it. Don't dodge that responsibility. Everyone is called to evangelize, not just the leaders. There's a passage in Acts chapter 8 where it says, And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of Stephen, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles, except the leaders. And devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation for him over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. But those who were scattered, the non-apostles, went about preaching the word. And here you see that the leaders of the church, the apostles, stayed in Jerusalem during the persecution. And this persecution led to the scattering of the church, which actually led to preaching of the gospel throughout Judea and Samaria. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God, his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He's not just talking to the Old Testament Levites, where a lot of people in the Old Testament, they thought it's the Levites' job. They're the pastors. They're the priesthood who, who do the work of God. Here he applies that to the entire church. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but if I asked you, how many of you are full-time ministers of the gospel? All of us who are believers should raise our hands. Now, I'm a full-time pastoral minister. I'm in full-time pastoral ministry, but how many of you are in full-time gospel ministry? Who are the ministers of the gospel? Who is the royal priesthood? Is it just talking about a very specific upper class or second level of Christians? No, it's talking about everyone who believes in Christ. We're all called to be preachers of the gospel. We're all full-time ministers and ambassadors of the gospel. Have you accepted this call, or do you think it's a job only to be done by the trained specialist? It's not evangelism that's done by the trained specialist with the support of ordinary Christians, but something where ordinary Christians, with the support of their leaders and pastors, they all engage in as we celebrate God's grace in our ordinary daily lives. Secondly, so first, accept and embrace the call to evangelize. Secondly, steward your household or your oikos. Steward your household or your oikos. Let me explain what this means. Tim Keller, he points out how evangelism doesn't happen through events or programs, but they naturally happen through one's oikos, or the translation there is your household. Acts chapter 10, verse, Acts 11, 14, 16, 15, 1818, you look at all of these verses, when people believed, they told the gospel, the good news to their household who then believed. And we think of household as nuclear family, but what a household was during that time was their extended family, their servants, um, their business associates. The household was a tight-knit group of colleagues and kin and neighbors. And when you became a Christian, you had to steward your oikos you had to cultivate that for God's glory, for evangelism. 
It's not an accident that you are who you are, male or female, the ethnic group you're part of, the experiences you've had, the interests you have. All of that puts you into a certain network of relationships and oikos, your sphere of influence. And it's your job to steward your sphere of influence. It's your job to communicate the gospel to them. It may start with meeting out of love, out of love. We don't just love people spiritually. It may start with meeting their physical, social, emotional needs, but always recognizing that their greatest need is to know God through Christ. So spend some time thinking about and recognizing your oikos, your family, your neighborhood, your neighbors, your colleagues, your coworkers, or your students that you are in a study group with, your affinity networks, your shared special interests, and your friends that come from all of those groups. We spend an hour or two at church every week. But who are you and where are you and who are you with the rest of the week? Who do you come across at work? Do you talk to your coworkers? Do you engage those who are not like you? Who do you study with? Who are your roommates? If you identify, let's just say, one or two people from each of those networks and you pray for them, you think of practical ways you can strengthen your relationships with them, not just seeing them as targets, not just seeing them as projects, but people, people to love. Our priority is not going to always be like, it shouldn't be like big outreach events or things like that. That's not where our priority is. When those are our priority, it's because we're not living missional everyday lives. It's through our daily, weekly, monthly, monotonous routine that we will be an evangelistic community, an everyday witness, celebrating God's grace in our everyday lives. That's why I want non-Christians to come to our DGs. I want that. Some churches, they exclude that to only members. No, we want them to come. That's a great opportunity to celebrate God's grace in our everyday communities. And we have to acknowledge that there's a level where we need to move into their territory, cross bridges, create bridges to be more accessible to others. It's easy for us, very easy for me, to stay in my little comfort zone and believe the world will come knocking at our door. That's the Old Testament, where the unbelievers would come to the nation of Israel and see how blessed they are. The New Testament is us called to go, to go and bless. And so if we want to be a congregation that's marked by culture of evangelism, Just something for myself to consider as a leader. We have to watch how many of our nights and days, how many programs we create. Sometimes I feel like for a small church, we just have too many programs or we have like 12 different teams that want to get started. And there's nothing wrong with that. Don't get me wrong. But oftentimes those teams are just the same people overwhelmed with serving already in five other teams. And we don't really have that much space to just spend time with non-Christians. We need to be careful to give ourselves time to develop friendships with those who don't believe. Number three, or number two, is steward your oikos. Number three is recognize where you're short-circuiting the process. 
Recognize where you're short-circuiting the process. You know, it's, it's simple. If you're friends with a non-Christian, evangelism will happen naturally unless you short-circuit it in two ways. Number one, just the obvious, you'll short-circuit the evangelism process if you hide how important Jesus is to you and you don't talk about it. If you just hide it. But secondly, you'll short-circuit the process if you're living such an unattractive life. You have a glaring inconsistency. You're always grumpy. You're always undis- extremely undisciplined. Always judgmental. Always complaining. Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 16 says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation uh, among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ that I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. And he says, it may be as simple as like, all your coworkers complain, you don't. Wouldn't that shine? And this is probably why it's harder to evangelize our family. We don't have credibility. There's a lot of history there. They see all our deepest flaws and blemishes, all of the good and all the bad. But even in your family, life happens, opportunities come up. I never, ever thought my brother would become a Christian. But time passes, and windows of opportunity will open up. You need to pray for that. Death happens. Funerals happen. And suddenly, all my non-Christian family wants to talk about deeper things. Guilt over a problem they have, a lack of fulfillment. Stay close to them. Let's not be obnoxious and overcome our glaring flaws. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. Peter says, I want you to be able to give an answer, but then he immediately adds with gentleness and respect. Because the manner in which we speak can so often be so unattractive and overpowering that people won't want to hear the message that we have. And there's a wrong way where we could be self-righteous and judgmental if we constantly come to people with an I'm right, you're wrong, and let me tell you why attitude. Speak the truth in love. Speaking the truth by itself is not love. The manner in which you speak it is part of speaking the truth. Tim Keller says, truth without love is profoundly unpersuasive and undermining of truth, if you just talk about truth as a jerk. And love without truth is not really loving. It's possible to be truthful without being a jerk, to be able to do so with sensitive boldness, sensitive honesty. The gospel is already an offense. Let's not add an offense to an offense. There's no reason to be a jerk about it. We need to learn just how to have godly common sense. Learn when not to speak. Listen to their questions. 
Be a good listener. Don't rush too quickly to the gospel at times, but really care about the person and examine your heart as you speak. Recognize where you short-circuit the process. Either you're hiding the gospel or there's a glaring inconsistency that ruins your credibility in preaching the gospel. Number four, evangelize as a community. Evangelize as a community. You know, part of being an evangelist is just making conversations about Jesus a common thing, even in the church. Spiritual conversations, we talked about this last week, should be normal amongst Christians. And if you're not having deep spiritual conversations about Christ here in the church, then it's not surprising that you're not going to have the courage to do it outside of the church. It has to start here. Every day we should be having spiritual conversations that go back to the gospel where that feels natural to talk about what's close to our hearts. And consider that the church is to be part of your witness because they see you, that's a witness. If they see you faithfully living and proclaiming the gospel, but they see a community that does that, that proclaims the gospel faithfully, that's an even more powerful witness. And part of the culture change that needs to happen, culture change that needs to happen is that as Christians, we'll share the gospel with others, we'll talk about it with those in the church, we'll pray together about it, we'll plan for it, and we'll help each other evangelize. That's the goal, for that to be the norm. Hold one another accountable. Strengthen each other. Share testimonies. Learn from each other. Bond through the ups and the downs, through the failures and the successes, and constantly pray for each other as we're sharing the gospel. Evangelize as a community. And number five, number five, and this is for me the most important one, start by praying. Start by praying. Pray when these thoughts come to mind. Pray through it. Pray that God will open the door. Pray that God will give you that heart. God is patient. He knows we're slow to process. He knows he has to teach us the same lesson a thousand times. And he will teach us. But we have to pray and not ignore the promptings of the Spirit. Talk to him. Share your fears, your doubts, your struggles. Pray for strength and boldness and love for God and love for neighbor. Pray for how to go about this. You know, rightly, I'm, in, I'm absorbed. Rightly, many of us are absorbed in Christian relationships. That's what God calls us to do. If you've been in church for a while, good chance that you have all these roles at church. And we need to pray about how we can faithfully fulfill our roles at church, be faithful to our families, in our jobs, and yet faithful in building relationships with non-Christians. That's a lot. That's a lot, and we need wisdom in this. Pray that God would use you as a faithful messenger of the good news. Pray that others would be saved from their sins and made right with Christ as you share the gospel. Pray actually expecting God to answer his request. Pray for open doors. Don't be surprised when he does open those doors. Pray for courage to take that door. Let's not fool ourselves into thinking that we can do this by the flesh, when spiritual tasks come about, we need spiritual power. We can't do anything apart from Christ. So keep praying. Don't quit. God will make a way. 
Don't ignore the promptings of the Spirit. He will make a way. I really think if we just pray and we constantly pray and we keep praying through this, then God will work in our hearts. And let me close by just giving you one more encouragement, one reminder of who we're trying to introduce others to. He is a God who loves us, the shepherd who seeks us, the father who adopts us, the king who died for us. There's no one more kind, there's no one more patient, there's no one more gracious than him. That's the savior savior we're introducing others to. And history is a long story of God's faithfulness to an unfaithful, scared, fearful people. Yet he's never failed his own. And it's not because we're faithful, but because he is. And he was faithful to us on the cross, and he will be faithful to us today. And part of his faithfulness reveals itself in turning a bunch of scared and unfaithful people into a people who are bold and courageous. And evangelism is scary, but Matthew chapter 28 makes it clear. It is scary, but we won't be alone. He is with us. We are forgiven sinners and messengers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's not be ashamed. But let's make it our consistent prayer based upon Paul. This is Paul praying this. The apostle Paul needed prayer for this. And so we definitely need to pray for this, that words may be given to us in opening our mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which we are an ambassadors, that we may declare it boldly as we ought to speak. Let's make that our prayer. Let's pray. And so I'm going to give us a little bit of an extended time to pray on our own. Seems like that would be the appropriate thing to do right now. Pray that you would be melted by the gospel. Pray that you would have boldness to share it. Pray about those names that keep coming to mind. Pray that you would be faithful in this. Pray for wisdom and discernment. Pray that you would open up your mouth to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, to declare boldly as we ought to speak. And maybe you just need to come to God and just acknowledge that this is an area we've been neglecting. But pray that you would make it your heart's conviction to do his will, to accomplish his work. So let's take some time to pray. And then I'll close us.
Father, we're so weak in this, but we pray that in our weakness, you would be our strength. We want to come before you humbly and honestly and ask or confess that oftentimes we're so consumed with our own glory, our self-preservation. We're filled with the fear of man. But God, would you increase our faith and help us in our unbelief. Help us to love you more, to cherish the gospel, to treasure you. And we are inadequate vessels, pots made of clay, but within us we have a treasure. And so we want to steward that, we want to share that. Not out of guilt, but out of a desire to see your glory to love others, to care for them, to meet their greatest need, to love our neighbors. As God, we, are, we fall short, but we are reminded that you are faithful to us nevertheless. And we pray that in your faithfulness, you would work in our hearts and create in us hearts that remember our salvation Restore to us the joy of our salvation if our hearts have gone cold. That joy when we first became a Christian, like the Samaritan women who went then and told everyone the good news and others came to Christ because of her testimony. We pray that we would not become so sophisticated or grown up that we forget to just rely on you. And so help us, God, wherever we are, meet us at our point of need. If we need grace, would you give us grace? If we need your patience, would we remember that? If we need rebuke, may our hearts be convicted and soft. If we need courage, God, help us to be strong and courageous, to no longer be full of fear. So fear, uh, free us from that, God. And free us to really love people while forgetting ourselves. Free us from our own self-absorption. And may our eyes be fixed on Christ. And may we see the world as you want us to see the world, to open up our eyes, to see that the harvest is ripe, to see as you see. So all of that, God, is a miracle that we need in our hearts. We want to cry out to you and cling on to you. We want to forsake any effort or belief in our own flesh. And we want to hold on to your promises that you are with us. Wherever we are, whether we're walking through the valley of the shadow of death or full of fear, you are with us. Your rod and your staff, they comfort us. We trust in you and we ask for your grace today. In Jesus' name we pray.